Welcome to the OG Advocates Podcast. Welcome back to the OG Advocates Podcast. I'm Katie McHugh, and I'm here with my friends, Dr. Megan Evans and Dr. Kyle Bukowski. Today on our podcast, we are here with my dear friend, Dr. Hannah Locke. Dr. Locke graduated from Indiana University School of Medicine and completed her OBGYN residency at St. Vincent in Indianapolis. She is an assistant professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology at Indiana University. She is also the director for the Eskenazi Gender Health Center, as well as the director of the LGBTQ Care Track for the IU School of Medicine OBGYN residency program. She lives in Indianapolis with her wife, her two children, and her beautiful dog, Frankie. I am thrilled that you joined us today, Hannah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. So can you... I'm going to just say for a moment why we wanted you to come on the podcast. This is the end of June when we're recording this. June is Pride Month, and you have a specialty and a national reputation for being an excellent provider of trans care for the patients that you serve. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in LGBTQ plus care? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's, it's kind of, it was a winding path for me to get here. So I didn't start out knowing this is what I wanted to do. I get a lot of my medical students that I mentor will come to me and say, how do I pick a residency as a queer person? And I say, I don't know, because I wasn't out when I matched into residency. So um, it's, it wasn't something that I knew I wanted to do. And I, actually didn't come out until the end of my first year of residency. And that was a really, really challenging process for me personally, um, just because of some dynamics with my family and didn't have a lot of support from my family of origin when I came out. Um, Plus got divorced when I came out and it was a really complicated process for me. And um, I felt like I had to weather so many storms when I came out, but then after doing that, I decided that I, even though it was really hard, I wanted to approach my queerness with a lot of joy. And so I, um, just decided to be very, very out all the time. I brought in a uh, dozen cupcakes that I baked with rainbow flags on them and gave them to my co-residents as a way of coming out to my co-residents. And just that kind of set the tone for how I wanted to be with my queerness. So um, then when it came time for me to pick a job, I really, when I interviewed places, it really seemed like a lot of jobs in the very conservative state where I live were not excited about hiring a lesbian gynecologist. Um, That's not apparently a really marketable thing in Indiana. Who knew? So I, when I was interviewing, I really got a lot of the feeling from places that, that they, I was hireable because I pass as straight a lot of times, but that I would not be welcomed to be my full self and I wouldn't be embraced for who I am. And I had you know, I'd fought so hard to get to that point of being my true self that I didn't want to take any steps backwards. I didn't want a job where I didn't get to talk about my family with my patients. And I wanted a job where my queer identity was an asset and not a liability. So when I was looking at jobs, I interviewed at our academic health center in Indianapolis. And 
um, they asked me what I would want to focus on. And I said, well, you know, if I could focus on anything, I would focus on LGBTQ care. Um, that's what I like doing. I had not gotten any training in it. I <laughs> trained at a Catholic residency. I just was a newly out person who was really into all things queer culture and all things queer health um, just on my own time. And the IU was really supportive of that. They said, okay, cool, like do what you want. And so they gave me the space and support to be able to pursue this. So it wasn't something that you know, it wasn't like a job that was out there that I filled. It was a job that I made basically. And I also had a med school connection with a friend of mine who we both weren't out in med school. And now he is very out and proud and is one of the physicians at our transgender health center. And he reached out to me about potentially being a gynecologist at that clinic since they didn't have one. And obviously I jumped at that opportunity. So that's kind of how it all came together for me. Long answer. I love that answer. Um, I really love hearing you say, you know, I was not trained in this in residency. I provide trans care in my practice as well, and I had the same experience. I had no training in residency on how to do this. And so I'd like to hear from you, um, what was your experience in getting the skill set, and how did you know you were ready to, like, set you know, set flight um, to do this uh, as an OBGYN who maybe didn't have this in training? Because I get this question from students and uh, you know young queer people who are interested in providing this care in the future all the time. Yeah, I was fortunate that I was connected with an already established trans clinic where they didn't have um, a gynecologist, but they had fantastic family medicine doctors who were great resources for me. I had, they connected me with the resources that I still use on a daily basis, things like the UCSF trans care website. I mean, the number of times I pull up that site for guidance, it's almost every day. Um, they connected me with um, some of the WPATH conferences, like the GEI conference that WPATH offers is something that I've done. Um, they were willing to mentor me as much as they could as people who were not gynecologists. So then the rest... I, I really think that for me, the most important thing, because a lot of it isn't that complicated as far as the actual gynecology goes, right? Like this is not rocket science. The biggest thing is how to be a compassionate human and also knowing about trans people and trying to learn as much as I could about the trans experience. That was truly the bigger thing for me. So on top of the medical aspect, um, something that I had already been doing just because I was interested in it was reading lots of books written by trans people. Um, Thomas Page McBee is an author who has written a couple of trans memoirs that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and uh, Laura Finney Boyle's memoir, just different trans people's memoirs had always been really interesting to me. And gaining that perspective of you know, what are other, what are people's experiences actually like seeking medical care and how can we do better? Um, that really was the more important thing. I love that answer. It is what I tell people all the time. Like the medicine is not challenging, especially for a gynecologist who like deals in reproductive endocrinology every single day. It just takes somebody who is kind and compassionate and can be present and support and validate the lived experience of the patient sitting in front of them, which should just be a normal part of medicine. Obviously, we know that it isn't always, um, but I just, I love that answer. I think it's so empowering for people who want to do this work that it's not hard. I was at a conference and 
I was planning on doing this care, and I remember asking a provider, you know, I said, how many, t- how many times do I need a shadow? How many visits do I need to see before I'm ready? And they looked at me and said, this is life-saving care. You're ready. You're a board-certified OBGYN. Like, you know what you're doing. And that was just, it felt so wonderful to, like, kind of have the pass with the acknowledgement that I still need to educate myself to be, you know, competent and inclusive and, and show up for my patients in the way that um, I would want to be shown up for as a queer person getting healthcare. Absolutely. I also think that my personal relationships with friends who are trans and non-binary have made a huge impact in how I provide care. I have some really amazing friends who are really excited to have a physician that will listen to their feedback. And so I have a, I have a friend who is a trans woman. And when I first started doing this care, one of the things that I felt nervous about was like, well, I'm not a mental health professional. I can't diagnose gender dysphoria. What if I do surgery on somebody and they regret it and I'll hate myself forever? Like I was so afraid of that. And so I had always been um, comforted by the requirement of the W path letters, right? So to have a gender affirming hysterectomy, you have to have two letters of support from mental health professionals. And then as I was doing more reading, um, there's a phenomenal book um, by Julia Serrano called Whipping Girl that's all it's amazing. And it's all about her experience as a trans woman getting healthcare. And she talks about how gatekeeping those letters were. And it hadn't occurred to me before. I need a health profession, a mental health professional to tell me that it's okay to do these surgeries. And so that was a really, that like rocked my world to think that maybe I shouldn't, and you need them for insurance, but to think that I could change my thinking about it and that I could make this decision with patients. And so I was talking with my friend Kit about this and I was like, but Kit, like, how do I know that somebody is trans? Like, I'm not that kind of doctor. And she said, Hannah, you know that they're trans because they tell you that they're trans. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) okay, that's it. And for me, it also had so many corollaries to my experience as a queer person. um, Because when I came out, nobody believed me, which was like, I, kind of felt like I was in a bad dream. Nobody believed that I was gay. Like my um, therapist was like, "Mm, I don't think you're actually gay. My parents were like, "Mm, we don't think you're really gay. And it was so frustrating. And so I think about that experience and how patients who have people who are like, oh, you're probably not really trans. Like, you know, like I know that I'm queer and nobody could have known that more than I know that. And so that really gave me some perspective for talking to my patients about their gender identity and help helping me to trust them and like, just trust my patients. Hannah, um, you know, many of us on this podcast and people who have joined the podcast and listened to the podcast work with trainees, you know, not only medical students and residents, but, you know, I'm curious, we, there's many pieces that are missing from our training. I could list several that I have learned on the fly as an attending. And certainly trans care is one of them. I mean, if you could craft a kind of perfect program for residents and trainees, what would that look like? Yeah, I think ideally every program would have a faculty member who identifies as queer and who cares about this so deeply, because I think that's the big difference um, is how invested you are in it. So, you know, I'm queer, my wife is non-binary, like this is, the stakes for this are really high for me. And so to me, it's so deeply important for the residents and med students to graduate with this knowledge. It's not that I'm like, oh, well, APCO said we have to add this to the curriculum. It's like, I care so much. And so that's what I wish is that every program would have somebody who cares 
really hard about this. And I think that that is the key to, um, to improving this aspect of our education, which is also why I've made the choice to be really, really out as a physician who works with residents and med students, because I want my med students to not feel afraid of being a queer gynecologist in a red state. You know, I want there to be more queer gynecologists. I also love that you point out, uh, you know, practice guidelines, like the UCSF guidelines are so good. And there's so many things that we train our residents to do that are based off practice bulletins or things like that, that they may not see before, but we expect them to know how to do those things if it happens. Um, And again, this is like, we're talking about like, you know, random cancers that they have to know about. This is like not you know, that kind of care. It's it's life-changing, it's life-protecting, absolutely, but it's not complicated. And so it, it really just takes a motivated person and just knowing what the resources are. I have seen from my residents the ways that their experiences working with me in the trans clinic have made them better gynecologists in general. I think it's a really good reminder for them that every single thing we do is so intimate and challenging and to not take like the pelvic exam for granted. First of all, you know, they hear me have these long conversations with patients about um, pros and cons of doing an exam before surgery and giving them the autonomy to say, do you want this exam before we do your hysterectomy or um, the way that we talk them through the different options for how to obtain a pap smear. And it reminds the residents to respect our profession and respect how much we're asking of people by, you know, asking them to come into our office, hop up on a table, put their legs in stirrups and let us look at their most private parts of their body. And I think it has really given them a good perspective um, and it helps with compassion. You talk so much, Hannah, um, in all every talk I've ever heard you give and and um, even here today, you talk about um, this compassion that you bring to your patients and you talk about the importance of mental wellness and whole person care. Um, how, first of all, how do you incorporate that kind of into your practice on a daily basis or in a patient to patient basis? Um, and then second, how do you teach that to, your, to the residents? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, some of the ways that I try to incorporate that, I mean, it depends on what kind of care I'm giving someone. So for a trans person who's getting obstetric care with me, then I make it a point that at each visit we talk about, you know, how are things going from a dysphoria standpoint? A lot of my trans patients also have eating disorders. So we talk about, you know, how's body image going, um, checking in on those things that sometimes we as busy gynecologists forget to think about. Um, I also, I think just giving acknowledgement and validity to your patient's sexual orientation and who they're partnered with. And I try to get to know my patients really well. Um, Like I want to know who, you know, who they live with and who they sleep with and what their life looks like, because then I can talk to them better about all of their risks and all of the things we can be doing to optimize their health. Um, But then also it helps build trust when you, take the time to get to know them. Um, so that's one, that's one aspect. I also, you know, with every single patient, cis or trans or any, any type of patient, I always say before I do a pelvic exam, I always say, um, how could we make this exam more comfortable for you? And it's just kind of this little moment of acknowledging like what we're about to do is hard. And I recognize that. And I want you to feel in control of this interaction. Um, so little things like that, um, 
are things that I've started doing and that I've been really excited to hear my residents do when they like don't know that I'm around, <laughs> they do it and it makes me really happy. Um, we also just try to talk a lot about empathy and, and you know, a thing I am always saying to my residents is imagine that it's you, um, which sounds really simple, but I think you get so busy that you forget. And so what I do is so different from the rest of gynecology in our, um, you know, in like the department where we work, I get to spend more time with my patients than a lot of people. And I get to have a special relationship with my patients where like, they're not sick when they're coming to me, they're getting something that they've always wanted. Um, so I think that that, um, different experience can be refreshing and just brings a fresh perspective to our resident education, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think that when people think about providing trans care, I think, you know, I found that people that I've met are sometimes scared about saying the wrong thing or using the wrong pronouns. And, you know, what would you say to people who have, you know, maybe don't have as much interaction with trans patients or are thinking about opening up that aspect of their practice, like how to start that and how to kind of dive in and, and, you know, being okay to make mistakes and feeling comfortable um, providing trans care to their community. Yeah. So I think one thing is that, you know, just for everybody, anytime you're interacting with people, when you if you mess up a pronoun, you just say, oops, sorry, correct it and move on. Don't make it a big thing. Don't make a big fuss where then the person feels like they have to comfort you and make you feel more comfortable. And so that's how you should be with your patients too. That's how we should just all be when we mess up pronouns and we all do it. Um, you know, it's, it's just your brain sometimes puts in the wrong word. So and uh, one thing that I do think is important is that while the science is like it's not complicated medicine and so much of it is just being a kind gynecologist who respects bodily autonomy. There are things that you should know before you do this care. You need to know what patients should do to get their hysterectomies covered by insurance. Like you need to know the WPATH standards of care um, because it creates a lot of heartache for patients when things get denied um, by insurance. And if you don't follow the guidelines, then things will not get covered. And so I see this a lot where I'll have people who will say, you know, in some of the like OBGYN Facebook groups that I'm in or whatever, people will say, oh, I like saw this trans patient and I'm going to do this. Does that sound okay? And it's like, you didn't even read the ACOG committee opinion, <laughs> you know, like do a little bit, do the bare minimum because your patient should not know more than you. And I hear that a lot from patients that they go into the doctor's office and like the doctor's like, okay, well, we'll do your hysterectomy. And they're like, no, no, I need these letters. Like, and so the patient shouldn't know more about the standards of care that you know. Um, so it is simple. It is so much about compassion, but respect your patients enough to do some homework before you say, okay, I'm going to offer trans care. And, um, that I hear that sentiment. I bring that up because I hear that sentiment up a lot. Like people are like, oh, well, like, you know, if I mess it up, the patient will tell me. And we just, we would never expect a patient with cancer to tell us how to treat their cancer, you know? So um, you you need to know what the standards of care are and you shouldn't, in the, in the interest of 
providing this care that is so sparse and you're wanting to do a good thing by providing it, you can do harm. And so things like the conversation that you have with a patient about whether or not they should keep their ovaries or not when they have a hysterectomy, that's a nuanced conversation. And you need to do some reading before you see patients so that you can help them make a good decision. So I work in uh, primary family planning kind of environment And so something that I find very interesting to talk about is we work in one of the most gendered fields as OBGYNs, talking about sexual and reproductive health care, all this focus on reproductive organs that define people's, you know, sex assigned at birth. And then we take on this other practice of medicine that like completely tries to, you know, dismantle all of that. And it can be really challenging for people because so much of our language and what we talk about is so women-centric. And then we take care of transmasculine people or, you know, non-binary people, which is, I just, I find it fascinating. I just want to know what your experience has been in navigating those conversations of how to get buy-in from your coworkers or colleagues or, you know, hospital administrators to, you know, obviously women's rights and like the, you know, very white feminist term is like, you know, important and has, has led to a lot of progress and how do we have a reproductive justice framework or how do we have a more gender inclusive framework as we continue to provide that care to a really diverse gender population who have uteruses? Yeah, I love that question. It's something that I think and talk about a lot. And I think one thing is that if you are someone who's taking on a role like this, who is going to be you know, the leader for trans care in your institution, you just have to be the squeaky wheel. And it gets annoying sometimes the number of emails I have to say like, hey, have we thought about what we're naming this new, um, you know, maternity center that we're making? Or have we thought through the decision to paint our L&D bright pink, things like that? Um, But you do, you just have to bring it up because it's not going to change until we push. Um, And I notice the longer that I'm here and the longer that I do this, that the people around me are starting to change. Um, one of my MFMs, I was, you know, calling them with a consult and they said something, 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 pregnant people, something, something. And my heart just burst with joy because <laughs> I loved that they had already started incorporating that language. So um, I think speaking up about it as the people who are conscious of it, because it's not on other people's radar and that's okay, but we're going to bring it onto their radar. So doing a lot of just pointing it out, I make it a big point with my residents um, to point out some of the really, like some of the really, really gendered things that are extra icky um, to try to break those habits. So one thing, I don't know if this is like cultural in the Midwest, but when people are delivering, then everybody in the room is like, okay, mama, okay, mama, push this baby out. Okay, mama. And it makes me insane um, because I've taken care of trans men who are delivering. And I have had to, like in that moment had to turn to the nurse and say, stop saying that. That is not the name that he uses. And so, um, you know, if you, if that's never a habit, you don't have to break that habit in the moment <laughs> that you're actually taking care of someone where it really matters. I also think with some of the gendered language, I mean, like calling someone mama, like, should we really even be doing that to our cis women? Like I'm a human. I have a name. You should know your patient's name. You should call her by her name. Um, you know, I'm not your mother. I don't like, I don't want to be called that. So I think that there are some ways that it positively impacts all patient care. Um, and then also with people who are not going to parent their child, you know, people who it's going to be an adoptive mom or it's a surrogate situation. 
again, those are just uncomfortable things we should drop from our language anyway. And I love those examples because they highlight that this is not a zero-sum game, right? By adding inclusive language, we're not taking anything away from all the progress we have built, right, in gender rights. And we're actually finding more inclusive ways for all these other people who are even more stigmatized or left out than maybe our trans or non-binary people. So that's, that's just such a great answer and perspective. I think about, like, gastroenterologists just say people. <laughs> Cardiologists just say people. Like, why are we so hung up on using the word woman all the time? Let's let's get started on how all the other medical specialties get away with so much more <laughs> from a policy and regulatory standpoint than we do. <laughs> That'll be the next podcast, everybody. Please tune in. <laughs> Hannah, um, one of the things that I admire so much about your work in um, your um, gender wellness and and in your transgender health clinics and centers um, is how efficiently and um, and successfully you work with so many other surgical services and medical offices and insurance companies like you've referred to already. Um, what is the key to getting this done? How do you navigate all of this? Yeah, so um, the two keys for me, one are having amazing physicians that I collaborate with. So the two specialties that I work with most are urology and um, plastics. So we're able to offer combination hysterectomy with metoidioplasty or hysterectomy with top surgery. So bilateral mastectomy. And um, so having people that are fun to work with and who are also really excited about this care makes those combination surgeries so much better. Um, and then the biggest thing has been um, having a nurse navigator. So when I first started, it wasn't, we didn't have a comprehensive surgical program. There was the medical clinic. And then it was like, here are some surgeons that we work with, but there was no cohesiveness to it. We were not a team. Um, and so about a year and a half ago, we started forming a team and we have meetings every other week. And they are, we were so fortunate that our hospital system wanted to support us in this. And they sent somebody from the hospital administration to say, tell us what you need to build this program and make it work well. And so we literally got to sit in a room and like make a list of all the things that we could possibly want to make this program run. And the very first thing that we asked for and that we got was a nurse navigator. And I, I always tell people that she's the most important person in my life other than my wife because she is critical to making this care happen. So she, um, she comes to clinic with me and meets the patients in clinic. They have her contact information. She's the person who, when they have questions, you know, about the process and insurance and all that kind of stuff, they can talk to her. She helps them with finding resources for getting their WPATH letters. And that's been a really critical component for me as somebody who would prefer to practice an informed consent model, but can't due to insurance. Kind of our workaround is that we have these phenomenal therapists in Indiana that we work with who are committed to making the mental health letters easy and affordable. Um, and actually a lot of the therapists that we work with are trans people themselves, which is just ideal. So she helps connect them with them. She communicates with those therapist office, gets the letters, and she she just makes everything run so smoothly. She checks in on them post-operatively. It's incredible. And she helps make sure too that people don't fall through the cracks because before she came, um, 
you know, a random person in my office, which is just a general gynecology office would get a fax and is like, Oh, a therapist letter. I'll just scan it to the patient's chart. I would never know that it had arrived. And then the patient would think that the ball was rolling for scheduling surgery. And it wasn't. So before she came, I mean, I kept lists of all of the hysterectomy consults that I had done and was like constantly going into their charts and checking to see if their letters had arrived and if they were ready to schedule surgery, which is not how a surgeon should spend her time. And so having Michael, that's her name, our wonderful nurse navigator, having her, it's, it's made me more efficient. It's improved my longevity. I was pretty concerned about burning out when I first started um, because it is a patient population that has, it has a lot of needs and, um, a lot of the trust issues with the healthcare system. So a thing that I was doing when I first started that nobody should do, don't do this guys, but I would um, give all of my patients my pager number and my cell phone number so that they could get in touch with me if they were having a problem post-op because I didn't trust that if they called the after hours number and they sound like a man that they would end up at the right place. And I was just always worried about my patients and now having Michael, like having someone whose job literally is to worry about my patients. Uh, so not somebody who's trying to worry about their patients and do all the surgeries and also take OB call and all of that. Um, that's been huge and has really improved my work life integration and, um, has made my wife less annoyed at me. That's for sure. (laughs) That's an awesome answer. And I'm so happy that your clinic has that because it definitely is a best practice for clinics that take care of high volume trans patients to have navigators and make sure that they kind of have all these access points, which is awesome. And your longevity is important because the work you do is super important. So if our listeners are somewhere where they care about this work, they're down to use inclusive language, but they don't have the skill set, and they don't think that their health center or clinic or hospital is necessarily ready to take on the work it takes to provide an inclusive environment what should they do to help a patient who shows up uh, at their you know clinic looking for help or looking for this care i think knowing who in your area is doing this and being able to get them in with them quickly that's important and i see that i see that a lot in our state i get messages from um, physicians all across the state of Indiana who are like, Hey, this patient showed up. We can't take care of them in, you know, fill in the blank, tiny town. And how can we get him an appointment with you? And the patients really appreciate that. And they appreciate that more than sometimes. I mean, you know, certainly there are places where there isn't that option where the distance is too far. Um, but they appreciate that more than you try and nobody in your office knows how to submit it for insurance correctly, or they show up to pre-op and they get misgendered and don't feel safe. You know, there are so many components that make it, make it work and make it safe. And so just find out who are the people in your area, form a personal relationship with those people so that you can um, get in touch with them quickly and help get your patients plugged in. The other thing that I will advocate for that we have definitely seen through COVID is telehealth is an amazing opportunity for trans and non-binary people to access care. Again, this care is not challenging, particularly when we're talking about uh, medical transition with hormones. There are numerous um, telehealth platforms and startups that are focused specifically on trans uh, individuals to get hormones, get their labs done, all of these things. And so and you avoid, you know, so many stigmatizing barriers uh, from making an appointment or insurance, all these things where somebody could 
be misgendered and have a negative healthcare experience. And so I also want to really plug telehealth being a great option to refer people to, uh, to get the care that they need. The only good thing that's came out of COVID, I feel like, is that now my hospital system has a integrated telehealth platform. And I have had so many patients where I actually don't even meet them in, t- in person until the day of their surgery. We do all of their surgery consultation virtually. And then, yeah, I mean, it's strange as a surgeon to have never met someone until they show up on the day of their surgery, but it's fine. I mean, especially if it's a situation where we, we don't need to do an exam, why not? And it saves them time and energy. And yeah, your point about like avoiding interactions with the healthcare system. I'm all about that, which I know sounds bad. And I want to just fix the healthcare system, but I also care more about keeping people safe. So um, I'm a huge advocate of same day discharge for all of my hysterectomy patients. I don't want them to sleep in the hospital and have the opportunity to get mistreated. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a pleasure to work with you and to see the incredible work that you do. And I'm so excited uh, to have been able to share to share you with uh, with my friends here tonight and with all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was really my pleasure. If you like what you heard, feel free to review our podcast. And special shout out to OBGYN resident Dr. Evie Adams for creating our cover art. All right. See you next time.